Jesus sure did spend a lot of time with sinners. Of all the details in the gospel accounts, the descriptions of who Jesus was and how he lived, his preference for spending time with social outcasts and notorious ne'er-do-wells is among the most well-known and reliable. Jesus loved hanging out with troublemakers, and all four gospel writers make a big deal about that. It makes me wonder why Jesus liked their company so much. Maybe it's because they were more fun than the religious goody-goodies of his day. I can certainly believe that. It might be because Jesus thought that they were the ones who needed salvation the most, but I don't really believe that. Or perhaps it's because Jesus wanted to teach religious folks like you and me something about who God is and how God saves us. If you think about it, Jesus' decision to hang out with the tax collectors and notorious sinners doesn't really make a lot of sense. God is holy. God is faithful. God is righteous. The people at Jesus' table were the exact opposite of that. Why would the Son of God, the incarnate Word, the Holy One, why would Jesus want to hang out with people whose lives and the example they set made it harder for people to recognize the presence of God in their midst? For example, God is always for God's people, but those tax collectors, they worked for the enemies of God's people, the Roman Empire. Every time they squeezed their fellow Jews for a little more taxes, they were helping the empire stay in control. They were helping keep God's people in the shackles of oppression. Now, we tend to dismiss whatever the Pharisees and scribes say because we know that they were against Jesus, or at least some of them were against Jesus. But if you think about it, it's hard to fault them for grumbling about the kind of people Jesus spent time with. After all, if you were trying to build a following of people, a group of people whom God could use to make God's triumphant power present in the world, why would you surround yourself with a bunch of imperial sympathizers or faithless degenerates? Why? Because those so-called notorious sinners are exactly the ones through whom God's glorious reign comes to the earth. Jesus wasn't eating night after night with those whom society had cast aside simply because he had sympathy on them. Jesus surrounded himself with them because he knew that God's power comes into the world when those who are lost are found and restored to the company of God's people. Jesus knew that, and he wanted us to know that. So he tells some parables to try to get that point across. Which one of you, Jesus began, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 behind in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? 
There's some debate over whether the way Jesus describes that shepherd's decision to leave behind the 99 was realistic. We talked about it in staff meeting this week. Do you think Jesus' audience would have been surprised to hear that? Surprised to hear that a shepherd would be willing to risk the loss of some or all of the remaining flock just to go out in search of one single sheep who was lost? Is Jesus, by presenting an unrealistic sort of shepherd, trying to tell us something shocking about the radical compassion of God? Well, surely Jesus is trying to do that. But I'm not convinced that that's the way he wanted to get his message across. In part, that's because historians have found a number of sources that outline exactly the circumstances under which a shepherd could leave behind all of his flock to go and search for the one that was lost. Those sources tell us that as long as the temporary caretaker was not blind or drunk or foolish, then the decision to leave them behind was reasonable and justified. The shepherd wouldn't be held accountable for any losses that the flock incurred. It's worth noting, though, that Luke doesn't elaborate on the details surrounding the circumstances of the shepherd leaving the 99 behind except to say that he left them in the wilderness. That's a less than comforting description. So maybe there is some recklessness going on on the part of the shepherd. But the fact that there were some established rules for doing just that, rules that everybody would have been familiar with, makes me think that the point of this parable might be more nuanced than that. That maybe maybe Luke omitted those details because Luke didn't think of them as being particularly important. The part of the parable that draws me in, the part that really gets me right at my own heart, is the way that Jesus presents this parable with a question. With a question that pulls his audience into the heart of this illustration. Which one of you? Having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 behind to go and search for the one that is lost. Which one of you? Even though the way that Jesus posed this question assumed that everyone who heard it would have answered in the affirmative, in this particular case, the short answer to Jesus' question, which one of you, was none of them. Because none of the religious leaders to whom Jesus addressed this parable would have ever imagined themselves as a shepherd. Shepherds weren't good people. They were smelly. They were shady. And they were always poorly behaved. There's a reason that shepherds work way out there in the fields while the rest of us live closer to town. An ancient proverb teaches that all shepherds are thieves because it's assumed that they'll lead their sheep to graze on someone else's grass. Now we know that David, who eventually became Israel's king, got his start as a shepherd boy. And we know that the psalmist and some of the prophets even dare to describe our God as a keeper of sheep. But those are exceptions that prove the rule. 
No Pharisee, no scribe would have ever deigned to think of himself as a lowly shepherd. And for Jesus to suggest it, that's the shocking part. The part of this story that no one saw coming was that these good and faithful and religious people would be forced to imagine themselves crawling up and down a hillside, calling out in a most undignified way in the search of a single lost sheep. I dare say the same is true for us. I only know one or two parishioners at St. Paul's who actually have any sheep to lose, but in our case, I don't really think this parable is about sheep. How many of us, having a hundred children in the Head Start program and having one fall behind would not leave the 99 to learn all by themselves in order to get that one back on track. How many of us supervising a hundred people on probation and losing contact with one of them would not stop calling to check on the other 99 until they found that one who had fallen away. How many of us, having a hundred children in foster care and losing touch with one of them, would not ignore the other 99 until we found the one that was lost? We belong to a God who searches diligently for each and every one of us, and a God who celebrates when any of us returns to the body of the faithful. But what's even more amazing than that is that we belong to a God whose salvation is manifest in this world only when the entire hundred are back together again. This parable isn't about God seeking out a stranger and welcoming that stranger into the company of the 99 where that stranger didn't belong in the first place. This is about God showing the 99 that they cannot be complete until the one who is missing, the one who for whatever reason has become lost to the community until that one is brought back into the fold. How often do we routinely and regularly identify our place in society as one that is inextricably linked to the welfare, inclusion, and prosperity of everyone else around us, especially the people who live on the margins of our community? How often do we think of God's salvation not as something that elevates the individual out of whatever spiritual, economic, or physical crisis they endure, but as something that brings the one who has been estranged by hardship back into the community that will care for them. If that sounds like a different way of imagining what Jesus' death and resurrection have accomplished, it is. Jesus came among us and lived and died and was raised from the dead to set us free from the power of sin and death. Nothing about that has changed. 
But what we see is that the work of evil in this world is something that would try to convince us that the community of God's children can somehow be complete even though some are still missing. The isolating power of sin would hide from us the fact that all our lives are intimately connected with one another and with God. Thanks be to God that Jesus has defeated those powers that seek to pull us apart. If you are here in this church or if you're watching online, and a part of you feels like you still don't really belong in this place amidst God's people, if you feel like you're a sheep lost but hiding in plain sight, then know that Jesus has come to find you and bring you back into the community of the faithful, and also know that we cannot experience God's saving love without you. And if you're here, and you already know for the most part that you belong in this place, then don't forget that your place among God's people cannot be complete until everyone is here beside us. Which one of you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, does not leave the 99 behind to go and search for the one that is lost? Which one of you, which one of us, 